Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. So this sermon today is a little kind of a two-part message that it's about faith alone, but it also kind of ties into grace alone. We're, uh, this is the second of a series on the Reformation, which started 500 years ago next month. And so there's a lot of history in it because although I will often work into messages, information about the um, ancient world, because that has so much to do with understanding the, the scripture which was written then, in my opinion, probably the second most influential historical period on us right now is the Reformation period, which we're going to be talking a lot about today. And it'll kind of take this week and next week to fill out the whole thing on faith. But in line with our topic of faith alone, Paul writes in Romans 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now look at that phrase, believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's a big part of the heart of the Reformation. So I watched a PBS special this week. It's a dramatized documentary on Martin Luther. Lots of experts weigh in, including the one that I'm mentioning to you a lot, Dr. Brad Gregory, who's now at Notre Dame. And um, I've listened to his 36 lectures a couple of times. He's a Catholic. Um, I recommend the documentary. There was one statement in the documentary that I uh, didn't agree with. Now, before I tell you that, how can I possibly know what Martin Luther did 500 years ago? I wasn't there. All I know is what I've been taught. Now, occasionally, I will come up with something original, but 99% of the time... What I'm telling you is something I was taught. All you know is what you've been taught most of the time. Chances are some of the things I've been taught are different than some of the things you've been taught. Some of my best friends here at CPC, they've never become covenant partners because they were raised Roman Catholic. And when we talk about Catholic beliefs just between us friends, they'll almost invariably, invariably say, that's not what I was taught. So how priests explain the Catholic beliefs, it varies a lot. Now, how pastors explain Protestant beliefs varies even more. For example, I grew up in what we would call a liberal Presbyterian church in Santa Barbara. Liberal refers to the type of Presbyterianism that doesn't believe the Bible is reliable in the way that we believe the Bible is reliable here. That we are what you call conservative evangelical Protestants. Uh, We're part of a conservative evangelical denomination with essential beliefs that are clearly defined, clearly spelled out. But in my liberal Presbyterian church that I grew up with, essential beliefs were left vague and often things were tried to kind of make more more palatable so that sinfulness wasn't emphasized and the necessity for Christ's sacrifice on the cross wasn't necessarily put forward or the necessity of faith, faith alone, as today's topic is. So after I'd been following Jesus for about five years and was, being, I'd been, was with a very conservative evangelical group, I became the summer intern in charge of the high school after my junior year in college at this liberal Presbyterian church where I grew up. Now, the youth pastor supervising me, he was also 
uh, believe the Bible is reliable and uh, classic conservative beliefs. But the senior pastor who'd been there the entire time I was growing up as a child, he'd been there for, I don't know, 25 years or something, he was a classic liberal Presbyterian. So I set up an interview with him. And I can still picture us sitting in his office, him explaining to me what he believed. And he believed that people of every religion are justified before God as long as they are reasonably true to their own religion, to their beliefs. He did not believe a person needed to have faith in Jesus to be right with God. I'm telling you this story for two reasons. First, let me be crystal clear. That is not what I believe. That's not what this church believes. That's not what our denomination believes. We believe that faith in Jesus is required. Not very palatable in our current culture, but that's what we believe. The Bible is reliable. When it quotes Peter saying, we'll put this one on screen, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So that's, so I want to make sure that's clear. But secondly, imagine the explanation that this Protestant pastor was giving me back then. When pastors explain what Protestants believe, it varies much more than when priests explain what Catholics believe. However, among the Protestants that are conservative, evangelical Protestants that believe the Bible is reliable, uh, there is a great deal of beliefs in common. The pastors I meet with each month, for example, would affirm today's topic as essential and are very aligned and would be willing to die for the principle that we are justified by faith alone, uh, that faith alone is required to be justified before God. So we're going to come back to that whole concept and talk about it today and, and next week, but we have some, some history to understand. Is faith alone being required to be justified what priests teach Catholics? Well, that depends. According to what I've been taught, that depends on which priest, that depends on which country, that depends on which period in history. Catholicism in the United States in the past 100 years is much more Protestantized than it is in most of the rest of the world. The Catholic priests in Brazil explain it very differently than the Catholic priests in the United States. And in the United States 100 years ago, they would have explained it much differently than they do now, for the most part. It's not always the same. So if you were raised Roman Catholic, and many of you out there were, and are my friends, when I read from the Council of Trent today, you may say to yourself, well, that's not how it was explained to me, and I believe you. Or you might say, yeah, but there are other sections of the Council of Trent that say it differently, because the Council of Trent is a big document and says things in a lot of different ways. So here's what I suggest. If I say something about Protestant beliefs that is different than you were taught, no worries, that's just what I was taught by conservative, evangelical, Protestant professors in grad school. If what I say is aligned with one of the classic Christian confessions, like the Westminster Confession or the Heidelberg Confession, then I am faithfully representing classic Protestantism, but that still may not be what you were taught, just like the guy that was the senior pastor where I grew up. Study the Bible, see if what I say is biblical, refer to the classic confessions, see if what I say is aligned with them. If you've got some concerns, let's get coffee. We'll talk about it, okay? It's okay. Now, if I say something about Catholic beliefs that's different than what you were taught, again, no worries. I will try to be 
accurate, quote official Catholic documents. Uh, again, the series I've listened to for hours and hours from a Catholic uh, historian. But it still may not be what you're taught, so study the Bible, see what the Bible says. If you discover that I misquoted something, please tell me. Um, let me know. I do recommend that you watch the PBS special, two-hour special on Martin Luther. However, the one part that I disagreed with was when they showed Martin Luther whipping himself, what we call self-flagellation. And the voiceover said, Luther hoped that punishing himself would be pleasing to God. And they did that as they referred to him beating himself, fasting, going without food for days, and kind of shivering in the cold by depriving himself what we call asceticism, depriving ourselves of physical pleasure. But what I've been taught is a different explanation than what they said about Luther. Luther was not trying to please God by punishing himself. He was trying to get rid of his sinful desires, of the sin in his heart, so that he could be justified and no longer afraid of God's wrath. Now, this is really the heart of the Reformation, how to be justified before God. Today we're talking about by faith alone. Last week we started not with the heart, but with the foundation, which is Scripture alone. Scripture is our ultimate reliable authority for what we are to believe. As we saw last week, that does not mean your friend can't be the voice of God at one point, or a dream, or a vision, or circumstances, or a donkey, or a pastor. It just means that Scripture is the foundation. It is the authoritative uh, final word. It takes precedence. But today, as we look at the heart of the Reformation, justification by faith alone, we substantiate the heart by looking at the foundation based on Scripture alone. So why was Martin Luther practicing asceticism, whipping himself, going without food, shivering out in the, in the winter cold? Because that is what he had been taught must happen for him to be justified before God and escape God's wrath. Why was he trying to get rid of sin? Because he was told that is what he had to experience. Now remember, a close friend had recently died. And so Luther had become terrified of the wrath of God. And Luther's understanding, what he had been taught, remember he's highly educated, he is a professor of Bible to a bunch of university students. He was taught that justification depended on two things, believing in Christ and repenting and confessing to a priest, and then transformation, getting rid of sin and sinful desires in his heart. He'd been taught that if he did the right things, like beating himself and aesthetics things in the cold and feeding the poor and doing loving acts to people, that that would get rid of his original sin, of the sinful urges that we're all born with, and that that in conjunction with what Christ had done on the cross would earn him salvation or justification. Now, some decades later, the Council of Trent would meet, and it's still an official document of the Roman Catholic Church, and it would confirm what Martin had said. And again, I know that some people have had that explained in different ways. And it would also pronounce divine judgment on anyone who believed differently. So I'm going to read you a couple of passages from the Council of Trent, which is still official today. If anyone says that by faith alone the ungodly are justified in such a way as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to receive the grace of justification and that it is not necessary for a man to be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. And we'll put this one up on screen. 
If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy, which forgives sins for Christ's sake, or that we are justified by his confidence alone, let him be anathema. Now, what does the phrase anathema mean? What is the word? It means cursed or accursed. It means let him be accursed. Let him experience God's wrath. May he go to hell. We don't say things like that today, do we? We hope we don't. But the Apostle Paul did. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Anathema. So the Catholic authorities, they believe that the Protestants are preaching a different gospel, so they call God's judgment down upon them. Upon me, because I am convinced, specifically what they said, that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in divine mercy, which forgives sins for Christ's sake. So it would apply to me, because that's what I believe. But don't rush to judgment. The Protestants also called down God's judgment on the Catholics. Luther said and wrote many curses against Catholic authorities. He was really quite crass and earthy often when he did that. Calvin also called down curses on Catholic authorities because they both were convinced that the gospel was being perverted and that was leading people to hell. You see, we, one of the things that the professor mentions in the, in the lectures over and over is we just don't, we just, in our modern society, we don't get how long eternity is. That was very, very much on people's mind in this early modern period. It tends to be less on your, on your mind the longer you're going to live, the more prosperous you are. They didn't live that long. Disagreeing lovingly, civil discourse, it's never really been a strong point for us humans. And this is probably a good, as good a place as any to kind of begin to consider this aspect of the Reformation period. And again, we're going to kind of complete this topic next week on faith alone, with grace alone. But the Reformation period covers roughly 500 years ago, 1517, when Luther nailed, nailed it, uh, put 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, to the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. That's the date that many historians will say that's the beginning of the modern era. Perhaps one of the biggest outcomes of the Reformation period is that the rulers of the countries, and there were lots of them, became convinced that since religious leaders with an awful lot in common, lots in common between Roman Catholics and Protestants, since religious leaders with a lot in common will kill each other over the differences, we must never again let let religious leaders be in charge. That was one of the outcomes of that period. It's my own summary. In the 1520s, about 100,000 people died in the Peasants' War. The peasants would go out to fight, thousands of them, and they'd have pitchforks and other farm implements, and they'd go up against armored knights, not that many armored knights, and at the end of the day, 5,000 peasants would be dead, maybe seven of the other guys. It was just a slaughter. It was awful. And it also was a wake-up call to the authorities about this religion thing can be really, really revolutionary. France went through decades of religious conflict in which over two million people died. England had a civil war. This is at the very end of the period. Over 100,000 people died. But mostly in present-day Germany, during the 30 years' war that ended with the Peace of Westphalia, 7 million people died. as armies went back and forth and back and forth during a 30-year period. 
So during the Thirty Years' War, political leaders stopped being motivated by religion in their wars, and they switched to fighting for other motives, like expanding their territory or protecting themselves from aggressors or gaining wealth and resources. Never again in Western civilization would wars be motivated primarily over religion. The price had just been too high, so the church and the state became separated. That's where that came from. See, before, when the Pope spoke to Catholic monarchs, they often did what he said or they risked excommunication. However, near the latter part of the Thirty Years' War, Catholic Cardinal Richelieu, you remember him from Three Musketeers, he actually gave monetary assistance to the Protestant Swedes as they fought the Catholic monarch Ferdinand, who was in charge of the Holy Roman Empire, because it was in France's interest to weaken the Holy Roman Empire, and France, after that, becomes the dominant power in Europe. When Pope Innocent X condemned the Peace of Westphalia, saying it was, quote, null, void, invalid, iniquitous, unjust, damnable, reprobate, inane, empty of meaning, and defect for all time, he was politely ignored. His political authority was gone. In the future, he would at times exercise influence through persuasion, but not authority. Now, it's at this point that I urge you to not exercise what I've called in the past temporal arrogance. Professor Gregory, he calls it different. He says a lot of people have what they call the rocket stage mentality about history, that there's the ancient world and that got people up, and then there's the medieval world, maybe that stayed the same or got higher. Then there's the pre-modern area, the Reformation period, higher. And then we get into the modern period, the Enlightenment and scientific method, and now we just are so much wiser and know so much more than they did back then. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 million people died as people fought over their religious beliefs. Sometimes there were political motives mixed in. 10 million people, and then we became enlightened. So that 18 million died in World War I. 80 million in World War II. Over 80 million people killed by their own governments through in China, by Stalin, by Hitler. Not as many people, but a huge percentage. Four out of nine people in the Khmer Rouge. These are by primarily godless regimes. Professor Gregory points out, it is self-serving to say medieval and early modern equals intolerant and bad, and modern equals tolerant and good. The numbers don't really support that. Look at the lack of civil discourse in our country today. There are some exceptions, people who can disagree respectfully without demonizing or name-calling, but our media knows that they can addict you to the channel of your choice if they can just make you feel outrage intermittently. So they give you sound bites designed to make you feel outrage. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek. Now, when I was young, I was a pacifist. I no longer am. I understand the arguments. I now believe it is appropriate in certain circumstances to fight to protect my family or my nation, and I'm grateful to policemen and people who serve in the armed forces. Like the people of the Reformation period, I do believe it is important for us to be willing to die for certain beliefs, like the one today, faith alone. However, I disagree with killing those who disagree with us. 
Be willing to die for your religious convictions, but don't kill those who disagree with your religious convictions. This is one of the biggest outcomes of the Reformation period, and it was totally unexpected by Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, the others. They were part of what was an honor-based culture. Remember, only 200 years, a future president of the United States killed in a duel a former secretary of the treasury, I believe it was, in this country, over honor. Since God's honor is more important, of course their honor-based culture told them they should kill those who were dishonoring God. Does that ring any bells? See, the Middle East did not experience a 30 years war. And some religious people in that area still think it's good to kill people who disagree. And Sunnis kill Shiites and Hindus and Muslims and ISIS, people who they think have dishonored uh, Muhammad. It took the deaths of roughly 10 million people for Western civilization to stop killing those who disagree with their religious convictions. What will it take in the East? So the heart of the Reformation, justification by faith alone, was taken very seriously by its proponents and opponents during the Reformation period. And they killed each other. What were they talking about? What does the Bible say about justification by faith alone? What are the ramifications? Would you open a Bible or an app to Romans chapter 5? It's on page 942 in the Pew Bible. Starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, while he thought he could only escape God's wrath, if in addition to faith he got rid of the sin in his heart, Martin Luther was not at peace with God. He was terrified. And he did all the things that he was supposed to do to get rid of original sin in his heart. He did it more vigorously, more emphatically than all of the other monks around him, but it didn't work. The more he just saw his failure to get rid of the remains of sin in his heart. And he even began to hate God because God was wrathful. Who do we often kind of think of as sort of the, the heroes for Protestants today that are kind of, yeah, those are the people that are really serious, those are the dedicated ones, those are the ones that sacrifice, those are the ones that, you know, must be pretty holy. I, I think probably a lot of us think of missionaries overseas. And uh, I worked alongside some for a long time, spent many hours together, and they certainly were dedicated and hardworking, had a huge impact. They knew their Bible, they were morally upright, they were reliable, and they were sinners. They read their Bible and prayed, they fasted sometimes, but each had areas where they were flawed. If their salvation, some of our heroes today, if their salvation depended on getting rid of the sin that remained in them, they were doomed. We all are. Hallelujah, that's not what the Bible says. It says we are justified by faith. Not faith and works, not faith and becoming purified. Faith in what Jesus has done. When Jesus was on the cross, there were two horrible criminals crucified next to him. One put his faith in in Christ. What did Jesus tell him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Not after putting his faith in Jesus and getting the remaining sin out of his heart. Look at verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. After we put our faith in Jesus, does God transform us? Of course he does. There's always some change, but never to the point of perfection or completely getting rid of sin in our hearts. The closer, the more transformed we become, the more the the bright light of Jesus' countenance shines upon us and we see more flaws. So you never find pride and transformation going hand in hand. You find humility, not arrogance. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In spite of his imperfections, Paul was experiencing God's love right then. He was not terrified of God's wrath as Martin Luther had been for years. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, while, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It's the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice. As it says in 1 John, we'll put this one on screen, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that and this not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He, the pro, to propitiate is to appease, to make amends, to make peace with. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus paid it all. There's no more left to be paid. Nothing of your salvation can be earned. When he was on the cross, he said it is finished. Or as it says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We humans like to earn it. We, we want to be proud of ourselves in some way. But as Martin Luther saw the depths of the sin in his heart that he couldn't get rid of it, he realized that he could not do anything to earn any part of his salvation. And so justification is purely based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it is received by faith alone. Not by faith and Something else. At one point, Luther writes, the law says, do this, and it's never done. That's what he experienced. He could never get the sin out of his life. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. It's the difference between Christianity and almost everything that everybody else is following. Everything that everybody else is following is do this. Here's the instructions for how to be a better person, how The other systems are do. Christianity is done. Jesus has done it all. Now we'll come back to this topic next week along with grace alone. But for today I want to finish with a statement from Luther that is just a beautiful comparison of justification by faith and what it brings us as he compares 
just how justification works with how marriage works. And I think you'll, you'll probably like it more if you just kind of close your eyes and listen as I read this passage from Martin Luther, The Freedom of a Christian. This is his third point that he's in in that chapter. The third incomparable grace of faith is this. It unites us to Christ as a wife and a husband are united in one flesh. Now, when two people are married, it follows that all they have becomes theirs in common, good things as well as evil things. So that whatsoever Christ possesses, that now belongs to you. And whatever belongs to you, that Christ claims as his. And oh, if we compare these possessions, we shall see how infinite is our gain. For Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation, and we are full of sin, death, and condemnation. But let faith step in, and then sin, death, and hell belong to Christ. And grace, life, and salvation come to us. For if he is a husband, he must needs take to himself that which is his wife's. And at the same time, impart to his wife that which is his. And therefore, we, and therefore, we the believing, by the wedding ring of faith, become free from all sin, fearless of death, safe from hell, and endowed with this eternal righteousness, life, and salvation of our husband, Jesus Christ. Oh, who can value highly enough these royal nuptials? Who can comprehend the riches of the glory of his grace? Do you see the importance of faith? which is a wedding ring, and it alone can fulfill the law and justify without works. And now, some parting words from Pastor Rick. Paul wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this means that you can be completely sure, certain that you have been justified before God because it is not about you. It is about putting your faith in Jesus who did it all. There is nothing left to be done. It is done. May that solidify your world this week. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website, at www.carmelprez.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.